You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. In the United States, the right to free speech is of critical importance to the Bill of Rights. Enshrined in the First Amendment is the right to freely express our ideas without fear of governmental consequences for the ideas that we express. However, this freedom is not an absolute freedom because constitutional law identifies certain kinds of speech as criminal speech. For example, the law says that threatening another group of people or another person is criminal speech. The law says that inciting violence with your words is criminal speech. The law says that libel or defaming another by maliciously assassinating their character or damning their reputation unjustly is criminal speech. Lying under oath, criminal speech. Hate speech, criminal speech. We see no, despite the fact that we have freedom of speech, there are there are laws that, that describe how that freedom of speech can be used in a way that allows us to have a healthy and functioning society. We recognize that we need to have laws that govern our speech as American citizens so that we can have a just and healthy society. And if you can understand this concept, then it should come as no surprise that God's law governs the speech of kingdom citizens. When the Lord liberated his people from slavery in Egypt, you could say that they gained a new freedom of speech. They were set free to voice God's praise and to speak life and blessing over their neighbors. But this freedom of speech was not an absolute freedom because God's kingdom law, his rule of love, identify certain kind of speech as criminal speech when it comes to covenantal thinking. To put it another way, there are certain kinds of speech that fall outside of the boundaries of neighbor love that is required in the second table of the law. If the, if the law is God's rule of love, and the first table of the law tells us our responsibilities to God, and the second table of the law tells us our responsibility to our neighbors, then something that's important as it relates to living into God's story, living out our Christian ethic, is understanding that there are certain types of speech that fall outside the boundaries of neighbor love. And we can recognize that the law governing the speech of kingdom citizens is important for maintaining a just community and a healthy participation in God's mission. Today, we come to the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is speech ethics. And speech ethics is a critical component of Christian ethics. And if we're going to live under God's rule of love, then we must return to paying attention to how we talk. And we're going to approach our passage today through two points. Criminal speech and free speech. Criminal speech and free speech. Now, we've been saying throughout this series 
that if you are going to understand the whole of the Ten Commandments and each of the discrete Ten Commandments, then it's really helpful to go back and consider how the Exodus context speaks to the particular commandment under consideration. And when we look at the Ninth Commandment in light of the context in Exodus, it puts a really helpful light on this commandment. Because what we see if we go back to the Exodus context is we're reminded that the whole reason why Israel wound up in their dire situation was because they were on the receiving end of lies and slander. Exodus chapter 1 verses 9 through 10 say this. And Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Do you see how Pharaoh framed up the reputation of the Israelites? He framed them as a threat for no good reason. He uses his words against Israel. And then later in Exodus chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, it says this. It says, the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no attention to lying words. He frames Israel as a group of liars, and it's on that ground that the whole, the whole nation works against Israel. Israel suffered the devastating effects of Pharaoh's lies and slander. They suffered as a result of Pharaoh's criminal speech. So when the Lord brings them to Sinai and commands them, you shall not bear false witness, they would have had no trouble understanding how important this would be to their community ethic. And when we move to our complementary text for this morning, James opens up this passage with a warning to teachers and those who aspire to be teachers because it's a dangerous calling. It's a dangerous calling because it's a wordy calling. And it's prone to errors and failures. It leaves one vulnerable to criminal speech. But after giving a brief word to teachers, James then turns his attention to address the entire community and to offer a more general discussion of speech ethics for the whole community. Take a look at verse 2. The text says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. What James is saying here is that it's only the mature person, the person who's disciplined with respect to their speech, that's living in wholeness. See, some people operate off of the delusion that they are whole because they know theology. And some people operate off of the delusion that they are whole because they are attuned to social issues. But you can know theology and you can be attuned to social issues and run your mouth in such a way that it reveals a deep corruption within. The mature person is the person who knows how to control their tongue. 
And then beginning with verse 3, James provides a series of illustrations regarding speech that were very common in the day. And what, what James does is he takes these common, these common pictures that were used by rabbis, Jewish sages, and Greco-Roman philosophers, and he puts his own spin on it as a Jewish sage. If you remember back to our series in James, James is a Jewish sage. He is a wisdom teacher in the Jewish tradition. And he is in the same line as the Jewish rabbi Jesus. And the entire community of Jewish sages and, and wisdom teachers. And what that does is it, it creates an environment for the teaching of James. But he puts his own spin on things. And the way he puts his own spin on this uh, particular series of illustrations is by uh, identifying uh, the, the tongue as the, the, the minor uh, component that drives the bigger picture. This is how he puts it in verses 3 through 5. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So do you see what James does with these metaphors? These metaphors uh, are related to that which guides and controls and has power. And the unique spin that James puts on these common metaphors is that he has changed the emphasis of these metaphors. The one who is steering is not the human being. It's not human reason, but the tongue. The tongue is what steers the light. And for people in that context, horses and ships were large things of great power that were nevertheless controlled by a small thing. And that is the way that James is working the metaphor. He's saying that is the case for the tongue. When controlled, the effect is wonderful. And when uncontrolled, it's devastating. One's speech, James is saying, not only directs the course of their own life, but it really impacts the lives of the people around them. It can dramatically affect one's course. And then James speaks to the destructive power of our words with the final metaphor. Look at verses 5 through 6. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And you know, the longer that I do ministry, the longer that I live as a Christian, and the more that I observe the state of American Christians, the more convinced I've become that speech ethics is conveniently ignored, and it's not even on the radar of many Christians. It's an acceptable sin to not really have a speech ethic or to justify criminal speech on the grounds of protecting the truth or defending the truth or getting people's theology straight or alerting people to the errors of our non-Christian neighbors and their, their worldviews. We don't take speech ethics seriously, but as we read scripture, y'all, we can see that there is hardly a sin that is more pervasively exposed and condemned 
as sins of speech, criminal speech. Just listen to a sampling from different genres in the Bible. I'm just going to read a few verses to give you a taste. Here are a few of the things that are said about speech ethics from the Proverbs. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor. The words of the wicked lie and wait for blood. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a gossip separates close friends. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it shall eat its fruit. But it's not just the Proverbs. If you move on to the Psalter, you'll hear the the psalmist saying things like this. The mouth of the wicked is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. May the Lord cut off all of flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. The prophet Jeremiah has something to say as well. He says, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. And Jesus didn't want to be left out of the fun. So in Matthew chapter 12, the Lord says to the religious leaders, he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And finally, And making his case for the universal sinfulness of humanity in portraying his gospel, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, in order to be very clear that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're rich or poor, whether you are young or old, you are ruined by sin. This is how he makes his case. He says this. None is righteous. Nope, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And you might say, well, well, how could you say such a thing, Paul? How could you prove that? He said, all right, let me help you out. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So what we see is that the Apostle James is in good company when he lays out the destructive power and the warnings concerning speech ethics. When he tells us that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. But let's get more specific about the everyday lives that we live. Here in Northeast D.C., what are are some of the ways that we can observe criminal speech in our lives? Lying. Lying can simply be understood as speaking with the intent to deceive. 
And this often shows up in our lives when truth will reveal our sin or our weakness or our failure. It's really a way of managing your reputation apart from Jesus. You say, no, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and I'm going to build my reputation, even if it's built on a bed of lies. Even if it's a house of cards, I'm going to do everything I can to make myself look good. And so I will lie and lie and lie so that people can't see through the farce to who I really am. It's a way of getting ahead or trying to stay ahead. And guess what? It's evil. Lying. Slander. Slander is when you drag the good name of your neighbor through the mud in, in, in an in unjust way. It's an injustice to the reputation of your neighbor. It's giving false evidence of wrongdoing and impugning our neighbor's motives and passing unjust sentence. It's when we mind read people and we think we know what's going on and there's something sinister happening and so we dog them out. It's like the, the many times that I have been falsely accused of not preaching the gospel because I care about justice and I'm trying to search the scriptures and help God's people to understand what it means to live justly in this modern age. It's like the many times that people would just go nuclear and hit the button and say that people have wandered away from the faith just because they hold a different opinion on a particular subject than another. We're talking about secondary and tertiary issues here, not primary issues of orthodoxy. It's the way in which we damn people with faint praise. You know what damning people with faint praise is, right? When someone comes up, it's like, oh, man, have you read the book by so-and-so? And, and instead of saying, oh, no, I haven't. Tell me about it. You say, yes, yeah, I right. They ain't all that. Damning people with faint praise running your mouth behind someone's back in order to make them seem sinister, unreliable, untrustworthy, on no grounds. On no grounds. You know what else it is? It's failing to correct another person when they bring slander to you. And you are basically living into what the proverb says, that, that, that the, the gossip goes down, they're like delicious morsels that goes down. And you just love to hear an ill report about somebody else because it makes you feel just a little bit better about yourself. It's a little bit better about your own failures and your own flaws and your own insufficiencies. It can show up as speaking the truth with the intent to harm our neighbor. I witness this daily, and the sad thing is that it often comes from people with Christian designations in their bio. It's the husband, father, pastor on Twitter. It's the saved by grace handle on Twitter. It's like, really? Saved by grace, and, and you spew that kind of talk? You, you talk about people like that? You put them in a bad light? For what? It's evil. Slander is evil. Gossip. Gossip 
is spreading bad news behind people's backs from a bad heart. It's secretive disclosure of information that is not yours to share. Do you find yourself sharing little tidbits and details and information and stories that are not yours to share? Do you find yourself spilling tea, as the young folks say, <laughs> on people's failures or their sins or the things that have befallen them? Gossip often veils itself in acceptable conventions such as, have you heard about so-and-so? Did you know that so-and-so did boom, boom, boom? Keep this to yourself. But, <laughs> you know, I'm only telling you this because I know it ain't going to go past you. <laughs> and our favorite Christian way of doing it? Now, look, I'm only telling you this because I know you're a person of prayer and we need to pray for this person. And then you start gossiping, gossiping, gossiping. The first thing you need to ask as it relates to you're talking about people is, are you speaking words of affirmation and goodness about this person? Or are you speaking negative speak about this person? And if you're speaking negative speak about this person, is it your right to do so? Now, if that person, what that person has said or done is public knowledge, then it's fair to be able to have a conversation about it. But it's not fair, nor just, nor godly, to take information that is not yours to share and to start spreading it around. It seems pious, but the heart that feeds on sharing and receiving these reports is evil. It's evil. It's a tool of hell. And it leaves flaming fires in its wake. Flattery. Now this one isn't often picked up by us on our radar. But if gossip is saying things behind people's back that you wouldn't say to their face, flattery is saying things to people's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. You, you, you're, you're trying to smooth them up. You're, you're trying to, to curry favor with them, and really what you're trying to do is you're trying to use your words so that you can manipulate them in order to get out of them what you want from them. It's a tool of extraction that dehumanizes people. You say to their face, wow, you are amazing. You're such a superstar. I just, I'm so blown away by you. And you, wouldn't, you would never say that if they weren't there. You are trying to endear them to yourself so that you can use them and manipulate them. That's evil. That is evil. It's manipulation masquerading as encouragement. Next is innuendo. And I, want you, I hope you're seeing in the ninth commandment that there, there are sins forbidden, and we're going to get to the duties required. Remember, that's our our decalogical hermeneutic, to be fancy with it. It's, it's our means, one of the means of interpreting the Ten Commandments is by understanding that each of the commandments holds out to us sins forbidden and duties required. But also, it's sins of commission and omission. So when it comes to the Ninth Commandment, it's the things you say and the things you fail to say. And innuendo is one of those ones where you, you fail to say what needs to be said in addition to saying things you shouldn't say. The best way I know how to communicate innuendo to you 
It's closely related to gossip, but the best way I can capture it is with a little story. A little story about an an incident that happened on a a naval vessel. And there was a captain of, of the naval vessel who had to write up a report on one of his sailors who was just going on a drunken binge. And so the captain wrote in his log, uh, uh, first mate, drunk today. So to get even, the first mate created his own entry into that log. And it said, captain, sober today. You get it? The innuendo is that he's usually drunk. Right, there are times where something is said and we're like, it's a shrug of the shoulders, it's a look down. Instead of saying, you know, I can't speak to that. You know, I, it's, it's, I can't speak to that, it's, it's not helpful, that, that's not going to be a helpful conversation. I, let's just, let's move on from that. It's like, did so-and-so, boom, boom, boom. Imagine, imagine if I, as your pastor, heard, you know, I have sit-downs with each of you and you tell me in, private things. And imagine if someone was suspecting something and they came up to me and said, hey, did so-and-so do this? And I said, imagine how betrayed you'd feel. Now, the, the, the real sinister dynamic of this is that it gives you plausible deniability because you didn't actually say anything, but you said something. You communicated. You let go of it. Innuendo is a close cousin to gossip, and it's evil. Next, finally, what I would like for our community to think about. And this is important because we do have a number of people in our community uh, that basically your job is you're paid to be a critic. You're a scholar. And so what you do is you read through journal articles and you do criticism, right? But it's a very short leap between healthy, fair, just criticism and deconstructive criticism. You see... Constructive criticism is helpful and good and necessary. We need people to build us up by helping us to see things we can't see and to change the ways that we live and speak and all these other things relate to other people. But destructive, deconstructive criticism is different. It's reading people in the worst possible light and taking aim at their perceived or actual weaknesses without context or compassion, in order to tear them down. The goal is not to be helpful. It's to destroy. And here's the logic of it. It, it, It's a mean-spirited attack motivated not by goodness, love of truth, and love of neighbor, but by the critics' own insecurities and the need to fill their emptiness. Do Do you understand what I'm saying? Here's the logic. If I can make them smaller, I can make myself bigger. If I can make them look stupid, then I'll make me look smart. Sometimes this comes as backhanded compliments that we give to people. I just want to tell you, stop. Don't do that. Don't give people backhanded compliments. Like, wow, you are the best out of all the worst options. (laughs) Like, that's what a backhanded compliment sounds like, right? That is, that is so messed up. <laughs> it's like you can't decide if you want to compliment them or tear them down, and so you try to split the difference, and it's evil. And kids, kids, y'all out there? All right. This is important for you to think about, too. I want you to think about this. It is often said, kids, 
that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie. The words that we speak to other people are really, really, really significant. You could be a blessing to people. You could be an encouragement to people. Or you could destroy people. There are lots of, there are lots of stories of people being your age kids. And, and they grow up and they get older. And because when they were kids, people said mean things to them, it changed their whole life. And it really hurt them and damaged their lives. I want you to know, kids, that if people start making fun of other people on the playground or at school, you, as someone who is loved by Jesus, you should be the kind of person who is willing to stand up for people and say, that's not right. They are not stupid. They are not, they are not whatever they're being called. You stand up. And you know what? Jesus will bless your efforts to be someone who uses their words to bless other people, to encourage other people. You know how good it feels when people tell you that you've done a good job or that they're proud of you or that they like you and they want to be your friend? It feels good, doesn't it? You can be that person for all the people around you. And so I want to encourage you that this message is not just for the adults. It's for you. And it also is for you in terms of how you speak to your parents and the adults in your life, to be someone who walks in respect and uses your words to be a blessing to other people. And we're going to talk more about how you do that, kids, in just a little bit, so hang on, okay? Big kids, James associates all of these verbal sins or sins of the tongue with the fires of hell. Just like in chapter 2, he says faith without works is the faith of demons. It's the same thing. And then he closes this section with a statement that should haunt us. Verses 7 through 12. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James is saying, in line with Jesus, that the reason why bad words, criminal speech, is so terrible is because of what it reveals about what's happening underneath. Bad words reveal a bad heart. Criminal speech reveals a criminal heart. And James has integrated the wisdom of Jesus from Matthew chapter 12. Listen to the Lord. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word they speak. It's sobering. Because we all know that we have spewed mean, self-righteous, evil words, whether in public or in private. And we will give account. But if James is right when he says no human being can tame the tongue, then what hope is there for us? That brings us to our second point, free speech. 
The bad news about us is that none of us is capable of mustering the strength or discipline necessary to tame the tongue. Our hearts are so corrupt that a simple drive in traffic or an afternoon with small children or a few minutes on social media will reveal the evil that's going on within. And as much as we claim freedom of speech as Americans, a Christian ethical lens shows us that so much of what comes out of our mouth is not freedom. It's bondage. It's bondage to idols. It's bondage to pride and envy and jealousy. Our speech reveals our bondage to the idols of power and control and vengeance. Ultimately, our evil speech reveals our enslavement to sin, no matter how freely it flows from our mouths. This is the bad news about us. But the African church father, Augustine, helps us to see the gospel in this passage when he comments on it saying this, quote, James does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but no human being. So that when it is tamed, we confess that this is brought about by the pity, the help, and the grace of God. The redemptive power of God's word is the only hope for healing and transforming our words. Because you know, it's, it's no accident that when we get to the Gospels, we are told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning, and we come to see Jesus Christ as the Word of God. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that in these last days, God has spoken to us in a son. And what we see is that if our words reveal all of the evil of our hearts, God's word reveals all of the goodness of his heart, all of his love and faithfulness, all of his grace and generosity we see through his word. We see in Jesus God's tenderness and compassion. We see in Jesus God's desire to build up and restore us rather than tear us down. From the mouth of Jesus came gracious words, wise words, healing words, encouraging words. And when we behold the fullness of the gospel, the heart-level evil that gives way to sins of the tongue is addressed at the root do you see? The gospel frees us from lying because we don't have to manage our reputation or hide our shame and guilt. Jesus has handled it. The gospel frees us from slander because when we see what Jesus has done to give us a good reputation by grace, then we will no longer delight in tearing down the reputations of our neighbors, but we'll delight to dwell on good news, better news than the mishaps with our neighbors. We will actively protect the good name of our neighbors because Jesus gave us a good name. The gospel frees us from gossip, transforming our hearts such that we are so delighted by the good news of Jesus that we have no desire to revel in the bad news about our neighbors. The gospel frees us from flattery because we no longer feel the need to manipulate and control others because we know our lives are held in the nail-scarred hands of the Lord Jesus. The gospel frees us from destructive criticism because all of the insecurities that drive this criminal speech are more than overcome by the steadfast love of the Lord. 
How can you feel unimportant? How can you feel like you're not considered, like you don't matter when the king of kings and the creator of all worlds declared his love over you? Brought you into his family as an adopted and beloved child. You don't need to make yourself look big by making other people look small. What's obvious in these texts, beloved, is that God has a plan for our words. It's not enough to say, uh, to speak to the things we shouldn't do, the sins forbidden. We need to think about the duties required in the ninth commandment. What is God's plan for the way you use your words, for how you speak? Well, the Lord wants your usage of your words, your speech ethic, to be a, a, a communal reinforcement of faith and godliness and correction and evangelism and blessing. Every Christian is called to speak the truth and receive the truth with, with relationship to their neighbor. It's interesting. You, you may feel powerless in here today. You may feel powerless, but you need to understand that your words have the power to bring life or death. Your words have the power to build up or destroy. You can implant faith or undermine it. You can show love with your words or betray love with your words. The ninth commandment is calling you to be a healer, to be a herald of joy, to be a life giver by being an encourager. Encouragement works healing, and it brings joy, and it gives life because of where encouragement leads. Encouragement leads others to God's story. Godly encouragement helps another to place their little story into the context of God's big story. You don't necessarily have to have all of the answers to every specific question. More often than not, your calling is to help your neighbor to get their bearings as it relates to the bigger story in which their story is located. You can give them confidence that God is at work in the difficulty and the suffering and the struggle. You can help them to lift their eyes to the source of their help. Remember, our lives must find their place in some greater story or they will find their place in some lesser story. Your encouragement helps others to find their, their life in God's big story. You're basically saying to them, you should try these lenses on. I think it's your prescription and it will help you to see the world and your life more clearly. Encouragement leads to God's character and attributes. One of the things that, in, that discouragement does is it distorts God's character in our, in our hearts and minds. We think them to be angry or cruel or against us or distant when life is turbulent. But encouragers help to restore God's character to their neighbors by giving them a word in season without dismissing the difficult circumstances or the difficult emotions of the discouraged, they're able to come in and help others to restore a right view of God in their minds. And they're basically saying, you can trust God with this mess that you're in right now. Encouragement leads people to God's grace and love in the gospel. One of the most discouraging experiences that we face is failure. Failure makes us feel unwanted, useless, and aimless, but you can help others to calm the inner critic and to calm their emotional turmoil by leading them to God's love in the gospel, reminding them that God loves them as much today as he did on Good Friday. 
He loves us as much on our worst days as he does on our best days because he loves us through our union with Christ. And he sees us and views us through all of the successes and the faithfulness of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel, that you're not viewed in isolation from Jesus. You're viewed in union with him. The Lord saw your failure coming and he loves you still. Encouragement leads others to the evidence of God's grace in their life. When you encourage somebody, you are helping them to dust for the fingerprints of God in their life. When people are encouraged, they are brought to the feeling of being seen, appreciated, and valued for who God has made them to be. They are being, uh, they're brought to recognize God's gifts and, and, and how they're using the gifts that have been given to them for the broader good. They're, they're encouraged for the sacrifices that they're making. They're being reinforced in doing the good and, and speaking the true and supporting the beautiful. They're encouraged to walk in this, this faith. You can encourage someone by celebrating the works that they've been doing. If you think in your mind, man, she is such a faithful servant of the church. Don't let that encouragement die in your brain. Speak it. Speak the encouragement that is in your head. If you see someone who is, is really just, you're blessed by the life that they're living and the choices that they're making for Jesus' sake, speak that over them. Because you don't have any idea how they might be struggling in that moment, and your word of encouragement might, the, might be the thing that helps them to hang on. It might be the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses in order to strengthen them and bless them. We all need to be reminded of the fact that God is at work in our lives and in the world and in our circumstances. And our encouragement that we receive from our brothers and sisters is often the thing that helps us to move from saying, what are you doing, God? To, what are you doing, God? It's a world of difference between those two. But encouragement is what helps to bridge that gap. And finally, encouragement leads others to the testimony of the saints. On the basic premise that if God did it for them, he can do it for me. God has proven himself on the pages of scripture and in the pages of the lives of his people. And so we name that and help others to see that that can be their reality as well. Our words matter. And not only do our words matter in terms of the impact on our own lives, our words deeply matter for our life together. There might be some of you who need to go and repent to somebody else. Because you have sinned against them with your words. Let, let's, let's get the healing started by having the courage to say, I sinned against you in this way, and I want to make it right. Please forgive me. It's, it's a call to courage. To not let racist jokes to just go by in front of you without you saying something. Like, hold, hold up, hold up, hold up. We can't, we can't do that. that. That's not the kind of speech I want to be involved with. That is... That is that's evil because it's, the, it's the, the jokes and the rhetoric that turns into actual physical violence against people. And we're not going to take party to that. We're not going to be a part of that. We're not going to be jerks in the way that we confront people, but we are going to be courageous. There's a call to us. Our words are always doing something. They're never neutral. Your words are either leading people toward the kingdom or leading them away. 
Your words are either, either confirming the truth of the gospel or undermining the truth of the gospel. You are either wetting people's appetite for the kingdom or ruining their appetite for the kingdom with your words. So let's make Grace Mosaic the kind of community atmosphere that is overwhelmingly encouraging and upbuilding and loving. Let us give up criminal speech and by the gospel embrace the free speech that comes from being known and loved and blessed and sustained and strengthened by God in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.